We begin today a new series uh, that we have entitled Elijah, A Man Like Us. Over the next 10 weeks, we are going to be exploring uh, the life of this great Old Testament prophet and learn from his life uh, what we need to know about our walk with God and uh, our life in general when it comes to a world of compromise and sin. And so if you haven't already, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Kings this morning. If you don't know where the book of 1 Kings is, we'll do just a simple uh, reminder of the books of the Old Testament. Uh, It starts out with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. So uh, if you didn't follow along with that, there's something called the Table of Contents. 1 Kings, uh, look in your Bibles to find where that is. And we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter uh, 17 this morning. In fact, the life of Elijah spans two books uh, from the end of 1 Kings into uh, 2 Kings uh, 1 and 2. And we're going to be looking at it under the heading, A Man Like Us. We're going to get to know a man who is an incredible man of faith. A man who remains steadfast in a world of compromise and sin. A man who was amazing. In fact, in many ways, his life was miraculous and even mysterious, if you will. He was amazing, and it was seen in his confidence to stand before a king. Uh, He was one who prayed and shut the doors of heaven from allowing it to rain. His prayers would lead to the feeding of people during a season of great uh, starvation and struggle. He would call fire down from heaven He would even be a part of a supernatural feat of outrunning a chariot in a distance of 20 miles. This guy was amazing. And we're going to see these things in the life of Elijah, his amazing life. And the reason why he is recorded in the annals of of history is because of the incredible greatness of this man. But the thing that I love about Elijah is that he wasn't just some supernatural man, but the book of James says he was a man like us. He was a normal guy. He was a part of us, the regular folk. In fact, we will learn as we study this man's life that he would be a man that while he was a part of great things, he was a man who was gripped with bouts of fear. He was a man who fell and was ensnared by the trappings of inferiority and depression. He was a man who found himself flip-flopping one day hot with his faith in God, and another day uh, he's scared to even look at his own shadow and what that may involve. He was a man that was hot and cold. And if we were to confess this morning, he was a man a lot like us. James gets it right. Because I know there have been times in my own life where I've been on fire for God, and then the next day I'm scared to death. The next day I'm turning from that God and that resolute faith in him and turning to sin. He's a man like us. And so we can see the life of our own lives in the life of Elijah. But when we study this man's life, be careful because Elijah is not the star of the show. Elijah is not the one who we want to see in the front and foremost of this story. But it is God. Because Elijah was a man like us. He was an ordinary man who served an extraordinary God. And the same God of Elijah is our God today. And as ordinary as we are in the ordinary lives that we live, God wants to use us to do great things 
just as he did in the life of Elijah. And so I will tell you, I'm handicapped this morning. We've got limited amounts of time, and I've got a lot to get through. So we're going to move very quickly uh, to understand the foundation of this man and the, lives that, the life that he lived and the times that he lived in. And so I'd ask that you would stand. We're going to read just one scripture and ask a quick blessing on our time. 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to read verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishba, in Gilead said to Ahab the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we begin a new journey. Lord, we have been set straight by the book of Titus, and now we will be told what it means to stand strong in a time of compromise and sin. Lord, you're searching for Elijah's today. And I pray that as we look at this man's life, that we would not revere a man and make him more than what he is. That He was a man like us. A man like us who was used by you to do great things. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a people, a group of normal people, who would be used by an incredible God. Lord, I pray that as we look at this man's life, we would see our own struggles, our own problems, our own idiosyncrasies and inferiorities, and that we would place them at your feet so that you could use us to stand before kings and rulers, to stand before those who jeer and smear the name of God and be the clarion call of righteousness that calls the people back to their God and King. Lord, we live in this world that is very similar to the world that Elijah did. And you used one man with one message to change the world around him. Lord, we've been given that message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is stand up and let your words be heard. Let it be true of us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Dickens, in his great tale, The Tale of Two Cities, utters the beginning words of that incredible uh, piece of literature. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but the line of paradoxes goes on beyond that incredible first statement. Because he goes on and he articulates that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of unbelief. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, he goes on to say, but it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all directly going to heaven. We were all directly going the other way. A paradox. How can it be the best of times at one point and at that same point be the worst of times? A paradox that is hard for us to understand, and yet I believe Dickens was right, and I believe that that is true of Elijah's time as well as our time today. Because if I was to take that into my own thinking today, I could use that statement and speak today to that very subject. It is the best of times. We live in a time and an age where it is easy to enjoy life. I was telling someone, uh, we got some 20 inches of snow. And I I remember as a young kid that winters used to be a lot harder than they are now. 
It was pretty easy to endure the blizzard that we had in this last year. The technology has weather reports coming out much sooner. Technology has created, God bless them, snowblowers and all that great stuff. That it's easy to live life. Because of all the technology we have and all the things at our disposal, we can talk to people across the world. We can look at them while we're speaking to them. And according to the great wonder of Skype, we don't have to pay a penny for it. We live in a wonderful time where food is plenty, where our houses are warm, where all we have to do is wake up and enjoy the things before us. It is the absolute best of times. And then you turn on the news, and you find out that that best of times isn't the case. There's chaos in the Middle East. Our country is in disarray when it comes to political things and the fights that we see happening. It doesn't take us long to open the newspaper and to see the world before us, that there are murder, rapes, and crimes going on. And in this best of times, we find out that it's the worst of times. Things that we used to wink or uh, whisper and, and, and not talk about, we now wink at and say that it's the new level of normalcy. It's the worst of times. We live in the days of Elijah. I don't know if it's always been that way. It seems to be that case that throughout history, the world has always had the best of times and the worst of times. But amidst that, God is about to respond And God is calling us as a people during this time that is good and in some ways very bad, that God is calling a people back to himself. And he wants to use you to do it. Well, we need to look and understand why it was the best of times and why it was the worst of times. And to do that, I'm going to give you the bad news first. It was the worst of times because of the perversions of a culture. The time that Elijah lived in was not a very good time. It was a time of great struggle and great pain for the nation of Israel. And the reason why these perversions had become so prevalent were because of three things. First of all, because of a nagging and nasty religion. Because of a nagging and nasty religion. You see, throughout the history of Israel, Israel had depended on the God Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. This God that we talked about uh, around the Lord's table. And they had followed God. Now, they hadn't done it perfectly, but for the most part, they had done what they had been called to do under the leadership of godly men. Uh, They had been able to uh, stand the test of time and pursue godliness. And when unrighteousness came, they would deal with unrighteousness. They would deal with sin as they were supposed to, as is recorded in the times of Moses and Joshua and beyond that. But starting back in the days of Noah, one of his sons and his descendants began to dabble with a religion called Baal worship. And it never became a part of the active involvement of the Israel uh, religion, but it was just there. And Israel would flirt with it a little uh, more and a little more as it went on. To the point that what began to happen is this nagging religion continued to make itself a foothold in the nation. Where they would turn away from God and pursue this religion. Let me explain something very quickly to you. Some of you right now have a nagging sin in your life. 
and you've never exterminated that sin, and you say, you know what, it's just one of my hiccups in life. It's, it's just something that I have. I don't, I, don't, I don't hate, and I don't cheat, and I don't steal, but this, one, this one's mine. It makes me feel good. It's, it's something that I just kind of do by myself, and, and I'm going to leave that alone. Let me tell you something. You allow a sin to have a foothold, and before you know it, it will have your life. And this is true of Israel's life because it allowed the door of Baal to always be left open. And one day, Baal kicked that door open and made himself at home in the life of Israel. And so it began little by little, and you see that throughout the history of Israel. This nagging religion that allowed itself to open the doors to become the religion of choice. Now, Baal worship, just so you know, was a multifaceted religion surrounding a multifaceted God. It's hard to pin down Baal worship because it was so syncretistic. It would grab a hold of all different kinds of religions and pursuits. But for the most part, commentaries say that uh, Baal worship was mostly the worship of the God of fertility. Whether it was the fertility of you and your, your wife or the fertility of you as a farmer and your crops. And so when you would want a bumper crop, if you would want rain to come to feed the food or the ground and to give you food, you would pray to the God of Baal. It was a God that was able to be bought off. It was a God that was able to uh, be coerced to do what you wanted it to do. How convenient. A God of your own choosing. No wonder people like that. And you look at our world today and you see that we have fallen prey to the religion of Baal just like they did. We don't like the God of the Bible, and so we create this God of our own choosing. And so you watch daytime television and they say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I believe Jesus would never say no to my inclinations and my desires. And so he's a God of my own choosing. I'll make God uh, moldable to me. And that's what the people of Israel did. They pursued this God, and they chose to use this God for their own bidding instead of worshiping the true God. Now notice, it was nagging. It was there. It never got out of the life of Israel, but it was also nasty in its practices. This religion was built around the issue of sexuality. I I, I went back and forth on whether I would would read some things about it, but because of where we're at as a church and and where we're at as a congregation today and who's assembled, I'll stay away from that. But I want you to know, as graphic, without being too graphic, that the most graphic images that you can come up with within a, a sexual realm was taking place in this day. And the things that we see in our culture today were going on because of the worship of Baal. It was an ugly religion. It was a religion that, that it involved all the senses of self and the pleasures of the body. It would use young and old alike, men and women alike. And because you communed with Baal through intimate relations, it centered itself around the issue of sex and sin. This perversion infiltrated both men and women. This wasn't something just that the men were a part of, but women. It preyed on children. It involved itself in frenzied worship that involved cutting of oneself and beating one's body in a frenzied pursuit to get the attention of God, this God of Baal. And it would go even as far, we read, That young children, at the climax of Baal worship, young children would be thrown into a fire to be sacrificed to gods. 
What a nasty religion. And yet, my friends, we see a lot of that going on today. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, it wasn't just this religion that was a problem, but it had infiltrated the life of, of its rulers. And notice for a moment that in this time, there was a, a, uh, a number of wicked rulers. I don't have time to go through all of this, and this would be a, a great opportunity for you to do some background information. This is one of the reasons why I love that our small groups study the same passage that I'm working through, because I don't have to come up with everything and, and give you everything in, in a 45-minute sermon, but that you can go and study these things. And if you would spend some time, if you didn't do it in small groups this week to do this, to read pretty much 1 Kings chapter 13, Verse, uh, through First uh, Kings, uh, through the end of First Kings, and the story of Elijah, you get uh, some background information. Now, one thing that you need to know and understand is a little bit of history, because what will happen is, is you'll be in the reading of uh, the Bible in a year, and you'll be doing great until you get to the book of First Kings, because it starts to fall apart, and it's hard to understand, because it seems like there are two kings reigning at the same time, and that's correct. And so we need to understand from history a couple of things. First of all, Elijah's life is after the life of Saul, David, and Solomon. For more than a uh, hundred years, David and uh, Saul, David and Solomon ruled over a united house of Israel. And they were good kings for the most part. There was stability. While there was sin, there was stability over the nation. But it was after the life of Solomon. If you remember, Solomon had hundreds of wives. And when you break God's commands, you know that there's going to be consequences. And there are because uh, with so many queens in the house of the kingdom of Solomon, when Solomon dies, there's a dispute over who the rightful heir to his throne is. And as a result of that, two of of, um, Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, are uh, in conflict with one another. And as a result of that, at the end of Solomon's tenure, quickly thereafter, uh, there is a civil war that breaks out. And the north, the ten tribes of the north, called Israel, build their own kingdom under the, under the king Jeroboam. And the south, two tribes, the tribes of Judah, stay, and they are a part of the kingdom of Rehoboam. And there's a civil war that breaks out, and because of that, the kingdom is divided. Now, once we move beyond that, now in your reading, you're going to read, so-and-so was the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. And -and so-and-so was the king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. And so as I would read, I would say, okay, uh, Rehoboam was the king of, uh, let's see here, he was the south, Judah, uh, during uh, the second year of Jeroboam. Like, how can two kings rule at the same time? When you understand the divided kingdom and the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, you will understand that. Elijah's life and his circumstances focus in on the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom had 19 kings after Solomon. All of them were bad. The south would have 20 kings during that time. Some were good and some were bad. The southern kingdom had guys like Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah, guys that we've no doubt heard about. But the Norse 19 kings, all of them were bad. Just like George Thorogood says, they were all bad to the bone. And what we learn is, is so goes leadership, so goes the people. 
and we see that. Notice just for a moment, and again, we don't have a lot of time, so I will move quickly, and I please apologize, I apologize for that. But notice very quickly, 1 Kings 13, 33. We see the first of the kings, Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 13, 33, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. He just found anybody who would serve as a priest, and he would put them in there. Anybody who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And so God uh, removes Jeroboam from from uh, the kingship uh, over Israel. And so who takes over? You'll see, of course, in verse chapter 14 and chapter 15, we have a couple kings, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and then we have uh, Abijah, uh, king of Judah, and then Asa, king of Judah. And then we have to move to 1 Kings 15, verse 29, and we see Nadab. Nadab, as soon as he began to reign, what does Nadab do? He killed Jeroboam's whole family, he did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all. How about that for a change and transition in power? As soon as the one group comes in, the, the group that's leaving, they're all killed. Every one of them, every family member, anybody connected, they were all dead. The first issue that was brought to this new king was mass murder. Kill them all. And it says, he did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed. According to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah uh, the Shiloite, because the sins of Jeroboam had committed, had caused Israel to commit, and because he had provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. So you're thinking, Nadab, man, he, he's going to make it, he's going he's gonna to take care of it. He's going to fix things up. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He just goes on his evil ways. And notice the next king that takes over after Nadab is is uh, Basha, and in chapter 16, verse 7, moreover, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu to Basha and his house because of all the evil you have done in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger by the things he did and becoming like the house of Jeroboam. You're just like your old man. Also because he destroyed it. Basha is taken out. It says in verse 8, in 26 year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Basha, became the king of Israel, and he reigned. So Elah's there, and he doesn't last very long. And Zimri, one of his officials, starts to fight him and starts to take his kingdom. And Elah only lives for a couple days because look at what Elah did in verse 9. He was a drunk. And so he didn't last very long. And then we look to verse 11, and Zimri takes over. Let's see what Zimri does. Man, he, he would be a good guy. It's about time for some new leadership. Verse 12, so Zimri destroyed the household of Basha in accordance with the Lord of the Lord spoken against Basha through the prophet Jehu. Because of all the sins of Basha and his son Elah had committed and caused Israel to commit, so they provoked the Lord and the God of Israel to anger by their worthless idols. So what does Zimri do? Man, Zimri, man, he takes out Basha, he's going to be a good guy, right? Look at verse 19. Because of the sins that Zimri uh, had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and the sin he had committed and caused Israel to commit. Man, we can't win, can we? Zimri is taken over by the king Omri. Verse 25. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. 
He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, in, in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Bad, 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 bad. Bad king after bad king, sinner after sinner, all of them provoking God. And when you have a group of leaders that provoke the hand of God to wrath because of their sin, it will impact a country, and it did. Notice, it doesn't get any better because we see this number of wicked kings. What a terrible time for the nation. And notice, it comes to a climax in a notorious relationship. There's a notorious relationship. Now we get to uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 28. Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son succeeded him as king. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became the king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil, this is important, underline this, more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Think about this. Not only was he bad, but you combined all of the bad kings that came before him and you put them into a pot and all of their sins and all of their issues, and Ahab was far more vicious, far more evil, far more sinful than all of them combined. Notice what he says. Ahab, in verse 33, also made an Azarah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. He brings in Baal. He begins the worship of the Azarah. And in Ahab's time, verse 34, heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son. This guy rebuilds Jericho. Remember, Joshua said, no one rebuilds the city. It remains in rubble. And Ahab says, why don't we rebuild that city and build it? And what happens? The man who builds it loses his son. And he doesn't learn from that because it says, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son. In accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Ahab says, you know what? Who cares that your oldest son died because you rebuilt the city? Uh, build its gates too and he loses his youngest son. This is a wicked man. But as wicked as Ahab was, it was who he married that really created a lot of issues. Notice what it says in verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And so he marries this foreigner, something that he wasn't supposed to do. And he brings in not just this foreigner, Jezebel, but he brings her worship in. Now notice this man, this vicious man who allowed the sin of others to cause death and devastation would bring in his wife, and notice his companion Jezebel. I, I love the name Jezebel. It means in, in uh, uh, her language, where is Baal? Where's Baal? I love what Hebrew, Hebrew means. Zebel in Hebrew means dung. I like that. God has a sense of humor. Jezebel, you know what your name means in my language? I like it. Now, this Ahab fella was a double-minded man. And I think it's important that we remember Ahab has three sons. And each of his sons are named in a pursuit of God. 
about Jehovah and Yahweh and all of these names. And so he had a token religion when it came to the Hebrew God, but he lived in light of the gods of this world. And some of us are like Ahab in that way. Some of us say we're a Christian, but that's only our Sunday name. And when we get into the world and into the life around us, then we begin to flirt and and play games with the gods of this culture and of this world. Ahab was one of those guys, and he marries because of that, Jezebel. F.B. Meyer called Jezebel the Lady Macbeth of the Old Testament. She was the dominant partner in the marriage. She did what she wanted. She manipulated her husband. She brought in uh, the worship of Baal. And as a result of that, she was a part of killing hundreds, if not thousands, of prophets of Jehovah God. So bad is her resume that the Apostle John speaks about her and a woman that would come in her footsteps in Revelation 2, 20 through 23 as the defiler of the church, that lady Jezebel. What a character. Such a character that you, you know, just with the name Adolf, you don't see many people naming their children Adolf. You don't see many girls in this world named Jezebel. A wicked wicked woman. It was the worst of times. F.B. Meyer uh, says that amidst this time, it was as dark as it could be, and yet it was the best of times. J. Oswald Sanders says that amidst this darkness, a meteor shines like the noonday sun that shines through the darkness, and that meteor's name was Elijah the Tishbite. Amidst the terrible circumstances of the world around it, and all the bad kings and all of this debauchery, God was about to speak. And that brings us to chapter 17 and the person whom God calls. How would God deal with this issue? Would he send a good king? No. Would he send an invading army? No. Would he drive the king to his knees on his own like he did the life of Nebuchadnezzar? No, because God's ways are not our ways, and God's ways are always surprising. He calls a man named Elijah from Tishba in Gilead. A couple things that I want to quickly move through today about Elijah, and we'll spend a lot more time learning about Elijah, so don't feel like you're being sold short here, but we need to know a couple things just for reference as we move on. The person that God calls, we need to understand his name. Now, I gave Scott a hard time when he left from the communion. I said, you took half of my sermon, but in light of our timing, that's good, but we learn about his name. Elijah, again, El uh, means Elohim, Jah means Jehovah, the I there, of course, as, as Scott has said, uh, my God is Jehovah. What a great name. It shows us that the parents of Elijah must have been a faithful people, that amidst the time when Baal was so popular, when the worship of other gods was so big, that Elijah's name would constantly speak of Jehovah being his God. You couldn't think about Elijah. You couldn't say hello to Elijah. You couldn't talk about what that little boy Elijah did without paying homage to the true king of Israel. Wouldn't that be great if that's how we lived? You couldn't stop and say anything about Tim at all. You couldn't uh, say Tim's name or your name in the workplace or in the schools without people saying, Jehovah's his God. Our names don't have to do that. Our actions 
do. Notice his neighborhood. This man whose God was Jehovah was from Tishba. He was the Tishbite. We know nothing about Tishba. Nothing about it because it's not recorded in the annals of biblical history. We do know where Gilead is, and we know quite a bit about Gilead, but Tishba we don't. It's probably a lot like Hinkley. You blink, you'll go right through it. And what really happens in, 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 in Hinkley? That's worthwhile. You should say, be able to say a lot. That's where Tim lives. You guys missed it. That's okay. But he was from Gilead. We know where that's at. It was located on the east side of the Jordan River. We know that it was a rugged area filled with hills and mountains, ravines and cliffs. It was a fertile place to, to grow livestock and crops, but it was a very difficult place. It was a hardened place because of the ruggedness of the terrain. So you could farm there, you could raise cattle and, and, and a flock there, but it would, it would make you hardened as an individual. It was a rough place to live. It, it was a place that wouldn't be easy. And so the people of Gilead were known as a rugged mountain-type people. Kind of looked like... Uh, the old Marlboro man, these hardened guys, these leathery-looking individuals. And many commentators believe that his neighborhood led to his nature. And that was this. Joseph Parker says this about his nature. There's a wonderful similarity between the man Elijah and the, re- and the region. Stern, grand, majestic, and awful were they both. Elijah was not raised in softness and ease. He was no wimp. He was all man the kind that makes the best servants of God. Softies do not make good prophets and preachers. They are flops at standing in the gap to stop evil. God does not call the lazy, indolent, cream puffs. We don't need prissy pastors, he says, because they are worthless. We need Elijahs, hardened by their life and from where they've come so they can take on the impossible task of bringing the gospel to a hardened world. God had picked a rough man for a rough task. And Elijah was a bold man who would deliver a bold message. This is Elijah. Probably wasn't very good looking, but no one would ask if he would ever wear pastel. He was a hardened man. And notice what this Elijah does. He declares a proclamation that shows great courage. Verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. If we don't understand the implications that come, this is not a man with a group of thugs behind him ready to take on a king. This is one man standing before a king and the armies of Israel, and he says, you better change the way you live because the way you're living is leading to devastation and it will lead to drought and famine. Two cultures butting heads. Two men standing toe-to-toe. It's the Super Bowl, if you will, of the Old Testament. A clash of the titans. And to understand it, we need to explore a couple things. First of all, the preface that allows for such authority. The preface that allows for such authority. Notice for a moment, and this is key, Elijah in the text never badmouths the king. He never shows disrespect. He doesn't add his own commentary 
You don't see in there as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Before I get to what he says, let me tell you what I think is wrong with this world. Let me tell you what I think you're doing wrong, king. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He speaks the words of God. And that's how we should address the world around us. So many times we find ourselves just bad-mouthing people we don't agree with or struggle with instead of speaking to them based on the word of God and a position that God lives. This is what Elijah says. Listen, Ahab. Listen up, Jezebel. Listen up, Israel. You can't live like there is no God and see tomorrow. My God is about to get started. Now notice, he speaks from the position of God. Notice, secondly, that he settles once and for all who reigns supreme over Jehovah. He says, Jehovah is not just my God. He's Israel's God. And we need to understand that and know that. And before you think that there's a competition going on, you better believe once and for all that God is the one who's in charge. He declares his place, Elijah does. He says, I'm only a messenger. I'm a servant. I'm not here in my own accord. I'm speaking on behalf of a greater authority, and I've come to fulfill a task. And so who cares what you think of me? These aren't my words. These aren't my thoughts. These are God's thoughts. This is God's message to you. So listen up. God is speaking, and because God is speaking, I can speak with authority and power. And notice what he says. There's some particulars regarding this act of sovereignty. He says next, what I'm sure would ring in the ears of the people. He says, my God is God and he's going to prove it. It ain't going to rain. It's not going to rain. But notice he goes on and he says, it's not even going to do. He says, for a few years, we learned from James 5, 17 and uh, Luke 4, 25, that that time, that duration would be three and a half years from the words of James and, of course, from the words of Jesus, our Savior, in Luke 4, 25. Three and a half years, no rain, no dew. It would be devastating. It would bring Israel to the end of itself. Three and a half years of pain and trouble, of searing heat with no relief in sight. God says, I am God and I will show you that I am. Notice the purpose of such activity. Why a drought? Why such hardship for all the people of Israel? There are three, and I don't have a lot of time to break this down, but there are three. First of all, God disciplines his people to expose rebellion. To expose rebellion. You want to worship other gods? You want to pursue sinful things? You want to do this? God says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to expose you for who you are. You're a sinner living your own life in your own way. Number two, he exposes rebellion. He encourages repentance. Three and a half years for the people of Israel to get right. God could have done with uh, the Baal worshipers of Elijah's day what he did to Sodom and that is just destroy them. But he's a God of grace and a God of mercy. And he says, I'm going to give you three and a half years. Bow the knee to me and not anyone else. Get right. Repent. And there's no doubt that the people heard this decree and that some, no doubt, would have turned their hearts back to God as those skies remained closed to the rain that was needed. And finally, God disciplines to exalt himself over all others. To exalt himself over all others. We think we're so strong, so powerful, nothing can stop us. 
But God says, I'll just turn off the spigot, you dummies. You think you're so great? You know, you and I are so dumb sometimes. I think that I am so strong and so powerful. I can do anything. But God says, let me just give you a little pain in your body. Let me just allow some trials to come. Let, let's let the money uh, kind of dry up. Let's see how you can do then. When those days come, God is encouraging us to turn back to him and submit to him. Finally, we see the prerequisites. We want to be like Elijah. We want to serve like Elijah. The prerequisites that are needed to pursue such a ministry. It's my hope that through this series that all of us would want to be Elijah in our own generation. Because God's looking for a few good men and women. He's searching for men and women who will stand like Elijah. Before you put your stuff away, I want to share just a couple things with you of what Elijah did. In the book of Ezekiel, probably one of the saddest commentaries of all of the prophecies known in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 22. And I just want you to write this passage down. I want, to, I want you just to listen to it. And I'm going to close here in a moment. But Ezekiel 22, verses 24 through 30, says this. Son of man, say to the land, you are the land that has no rain or showers in the day of wrath. There's a conspiracy of her princes within her like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people. Sounds like Elijah's day. They take treasures and precious things and they make many widows within her. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between unclean and clean. It sounds like our homes in the evangelical world. They shut their eyes to keeping my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gains. Her prophets whitewash these deeds by them with false visions and lying uh, divisions and divinations. They say this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and they mistreat the alien, denying them justice. Now notice what he says, the saddest commentary in all of the Old Testament and maybe throughout the New. This is what God says, I looked for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. And this is what God says. I looked among all of them and I could not find one. Is God looking in our generation today, men and women, and looking at the plagues that surround our world and says, I'm looking for one man in that workplace, one woman in that neighborhood, one kid in that school who will stand up for me? And does God look down and does he say, I find None. This is why we study the life of Elijah. Because we are so complacent. We are so vanilla in our walk with God. And we see a man write these down very quickly. Elijah was studied up. He knew the word of the Lord. He knew that if Israel sinned, God would withhold rain. He had addressed it three times before Elijah's time on earth to Moses and to Solomon just 50 years before him. He knew what sin would bring. He was prayed up. 
Not only did he know the word of God, but it says in James chapter 5 that he earnestly and persistently prayed. He was cleaned up. The scripture says that the prayers of a righteous man avail much. This was not some guy that just kind of uh, would, would say a message and would not be himself clean. He was righteous. And because of that, he was stirred up. My friends, we need Elijah's in our world today. We need men and women who know what the word of God says who take the word of God and who get on their knees and say, Lord, in my wicked and depraved generation, I want to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. I want to pursue you. And I'm not just going to speak that, but I'm going to live that. And I'm going to make sure there's no corruption in my life, that there's no lying in my tongues. And then I'm going to work at, look at this world of sin, and I'm going to be stirred up. In a world just like Elijah's, will we be men and women like Ahab's? And like the people, the scripture says that we're bouncing from the opinion of two religions. One day it was Baal, the other day it was God. Some of you are bouncing from one uh, religion to another. The religion of the world, and then it's Sunday and it's time to get dressed up and look all good and say, hey, today is our day for our God. But as soon as we leave this place, we go back to following and flirting with the things of this world. Stop being divided and say today, I serve the God of Israel who lives. We need to be a church of Elijah's who stand on behalf of God in the gap to turn a wicked people and a wicked nation back to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this man, Elijah. A man just like us. A man who walks into the throne room of a king and says, because of your sin, God is about to speak. Lord, we know that we're all sinners. And so none of us can sit here and, and, and say without impunity that, that we don't need your grace. And so, Lord, amidst this resolute spirit, I pray that we would remember that we are a people in need of your grace. But, Lord, that that would not keep us from speaking the truth. And so, Lord, I pray for the schools that are represented, that our young people will be the Elijahs in the hallways and in their classrooms and on the soccer and football fields. I pray for the men and women who will tomorrow get in their cars and commute to a place of work and that they will be the Elijahs who will turn from sin, who will say, if it means my job, I will not do what you're asking me to do. If it means a promotion, I will not let you destroy the name of my God. Who around the water cooler, when coarse joking and idiotic things are said, that they would not be a part of them, but would be righteous. That our neighborhoods would know that we're not the people that throw the good barbecues and the good pool parties, but they would know and that our testimony would ring through the streets of our towns that we are a people set apart for God to pursue his good purposes and to bring a people back to God. Lord, this is what we want to be. This is why we worship. This is why we fellowship together, to be a people set apart to do what you've called us to do. And Lord, we have sat so much on the sidelines. 
and we've allowed evil to prevail. Lord, allow our hearts to be stirred just as Elijah's did so that we can pursue righteousness and proclaim it from the depths of who we are so that all the world may hear. Lord, we leave this place now. And Lord, I pray that that spirit would not leave us. Give us the spirit of Elijah so that we can stand in the gap for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.